1: My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Of you my friends, I'm just trying to make you a little money. My job is not just to entertain and educate, but I want to teach you and explain and tonight I'm doing it. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Cramer. We too often invest for the day. I always hear people talking about what's working at the moment. And in the old days, when the great Mark Haynes ruled the mornings around here, I remember that each time I co-hosted, he would introduce me as Reverend Jim Bob from the Church of What's Happening Now. It was fun back then. It seemed like everyone was running their own personal hedge fund. There was an understanding that a stock could be here today and going tomorrow, and everything was fine. Everyone was fine with it. Those days are over, though. And if you recommend a stock for a trade, even if you say, buy it today for the analyst meeting tomorrow, and then you sell, there will always be a video, a YouTube, kicking around, shows you like the stock, but never gave the sell call. So we've gone beyond that. We're all about educating you to be a better investor. The same thing we do every day at a higher, intense level at the CNBC Investing Club that I want you to join. Tonight, I want to introduce you to this concept that is so important, and it's called suitability. Basically, what stocks fit you? What investments are right for you? Not for this week, not for this month, but for your age, for your temperament. I first heard of the concept of suitability when I was in training at Goldman Sachs for the group that helps small institutions and individuals now called private wealth management. I've been buying individual stocks for myself and others for a half decade before I got to Goldman in 1983 as a summer intern. At the time, I was watching Financial News Network between classes at Harvard Law School. That was the predecessor to CNBC. Whenever I could, I'd run over to the Harvard Business School Library, where they had all these old research reports from long-gone firms like Bayes, Shearson, Lehman about stocks, totally on a catch-as-catch-can basis. Those of you who grew up with the Internet have no idea how hard it was to access information in the 80s. If I liked a company, I would have to ask the librarian for a microfiche of the firm's SEC filings. I don't know, do they still have microfiches? These were little pieces of plastic that you stuck into a machine and you read the filings, all which were usually six months old by the time I got them. Everything I did back then is online now and instant and updated. The imperfections in the market back then were legion. Now, everyone can know everything, but more on that later tonight. I spent all week trying to find one stock that I thought would work, one stock that would be good for a week, where anyone who wanted to invest could take the idea. And then I changed my answering machine. Yes, my answering machine, another thing we got rid of. I changed the message to a 20 second rap on the stock. Don't know answering machines? Can you imagine? Well, some company used to make them with all those jobs wiped out by your cell phone. Same with answering services, for that matter. Talk about jobs that aren't coming back. Anyway, I'd say, hi, this is Jim. I'm not here right now, but I like both the chart and the recent numbers from People Express, a long-since bankrupt airline that I used to jet down to New York for job interviews. My best one, a recommendation for monolithic memories, a smoke show of a company with a red-hot stock that was run by a guy named Zev Drury, who you know, two decades later helped save Tesla back when it was struggling during the financial crisis. He was the last CEO before Elon Musk. Anyway, monolithic shot up like a rocket that week and only ended up being acquired by advanced micro-devices at a very big premium. It was the best Kramer's Not at Home call this machine hit I had ever had. And believe it or not, Jim is not home became a rallying cry for lots of people who were calling me back then, hoping I wasn't home so they could get the tip without having to interact with me. Not long after I got a job at Goldman Sachs, one of the officers at the firm called me in And got the machine with this, he heard the recommendation. He told me to call as soon as possible. I did, and he asked me if I knew what suitability was. I had no idea. So he introduced me to the concept. He asked me, did I ever consider that many people who called me may not be ready for the stock of the hottest semiconductor company in the land, and that I was recommending it to them one-on-one without any sense of it whether it was right for them? Suitability. Was it suitable? I said, I always thought the stocks were pretty much a caveat emptor situation. We all know that, unlike, say, vacuum cleaners, you can't take stocks back to the store and get a refund. They come with no guarantee, so what's the deal? This executive, how? Had- it into my head that before you recommend a stock on a one-on-one level at a registered brokerage house of all places, you had to know what that person wanted out of, what what did they want from stocks? You had to know if the stock was right for them and for their level of risk tolerance. Monolithic memories, he said, wasn't exactly right for anyone other than the most risk-seeking investors out there, the financial equivalent of bungee jumpers. So let's start there. Today, I want you to ask yourself, what is your tolerance? How much risk do you want out of a stock? You see, stocks are pretty peculiar pieces of merchandise when you think about it. You buy a car and you know it's not worth as much the moment it leaves the lot, correct? But there are all sorts of warranties. You buy a house and you know it could burn down the next day. However, you can buy, before you buy it, you got a binder with insurance. So if it does burn down, you can get your money back. Clothes can be returned, devices returned, phones, PCs, washers, dryers, you name it. But stocks? If you buy a share of Nike and the next day Goldman Sachs downgrades it and then a day after Foot Locker says there's been a slowdown in Jordans, you can't go back to your broker and say, hey, chief, you never told me this could happen. I'm down 300 bucks on 2,000 shares and I'm out of six. Hey, man, I'm, I'm losing too much money. I want my money back. Sorry, caveat emptor. Now, back then when I got started, it would have been incumbent upon the broker to recognize that the buyer would know these things could happen. Maybe the broker should never been recommending that stock to begin with. You get the point though, because you can't take stocks back and get the same price because there's no real insurance, although you could buy an expensive put option underneath with a cost that lowers the risk of Nike pretty dramatically and has to be renewed constantly. Suitability is incredibly important. That's why for the next hour, you're gonna learn how to measure your own tolerance versus a variety of factors. Because these days with digital brokers, there's no real protection, just a signed form that says you get it. You may not know what you're getting into. Tonight, the bottom line, that stops here. By the end of this show, you'll know what suits you and what doesn't, no matter what your age or your style. Or to put it that another way, caveat emptor, no. Just, buyer, be a little more aware of what you might be committing your hard-earned dollars to when you purchase a stock. Let's take calls. Let's go to Kyle in New Jersey. Kyle. Best friend, Jim Kramer. How are you, buddy? I am good, Kyle. Thanks for calling. How can I help you?
2: So I was wondering, first of all, I am an investment club member, and this is my third time talking to you, man. Terrific. And and I feel like
1: I know you personally. I love you to death. Thank you. Um, I would like to know how often you look
2: at RSI or MACD data when you're buying or selling a stock.
1: How I'm gonna look at the, at the relative strength index or the back, I have to tell you, I look all the time. I do not like to buy stocks where the chart is bad. It's one of the reasons why we do off the charts on Tuesdays. I think it's incredibly important, Kyle, because others do, and anything that's important to others is important to me. Mark in New York, Mark. What is up, Jimmy Cho? Oh, man, here, what's happening? I have an
2: IRA
0: account. I have an IRA uh, account for my retirement, and I was wondering if it's okay to take some profits and then reinvest the cash in my account at another time.
1: Well, you know, I prefer you to let it run unless the stock is really sour, uh, because I I just think I don't want you to remember we're investing for the long term in IRA, and I have to believe that what you saw in the stock is continued. Otherwise, look, if you have to take a loss, take a loss, but keep investing in your IRA. That's the best thing you do. Go to Nick in Florida. Please, Nick. Uh, bo- bo- booyah, Jimmy Chill. Thank My you. question, when you
0: help your children invest, is it more important to save up and give them, say, a big
1: snowball, a big lump of money when they get married, or set them up early, literally an infant, pay the baby with, say, a small amount in dividend stocks, to rephrase it in such a way? Which is more important, the size of the snowball or the height of the hill that compounds it? Wow. I love that. Well, first, I can't help my kids. They have to do that on their own because of my job. I'm not allowed to know what they're up to. But what I always say to my kids is is that, look, I want you to go make as much money as possible with half the money. And the other half, I want you to do index funds and go learn some stocks. I think when they finally decide what they're going to do with their lives, they can do it. But that's my advice to them now. I don't know what they own because that wouldn't be right. By the end of tonight's show, I hope you'll know what suits you and what doesn't, no matter what your age or your investing style. Tonight, I'm helping you form the necessary investing strategies you need at all stages of your life, from young to old, just like the gentleman we just talked to. I'm going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. So stay with Kramer.
3: Don't miss a second of Mad Money.
2: At indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire, you need indeed.
1: Tonight's all about you. About knowing what you can and can't do because it's not right for you. Because it's not suitable. Now, there are all kinds of suitability considerations in the business. First and foremost, there's age suitability. I want to start with kids, prickly babies. That money's been on so long now that there are kids who were born who are in their teens. Uh, or, and if their parents listened to my best pitch when we got started, they'd already be well on their way towards some great wealth. Parents, grandparents, listen up. You can give all sorts of things to families that just had babies. I want you to open up accounts for them, or at least give them some shares of stock so that from the moment, the earliest moment, you can start the process of saving. Now, here's my commercial for something that doesn't need a commercial, because almost every expert you hear from is in love with them. I'm talking about index funds, which aren't perfect, but they're the best way to go if you want to put your money on autopilot and you can't spend a lot of time looking at individual stocks, just to buy a good bet the whole market. So if you just had a kid, you can take a couple of hundred smackers and buy some shares in an index fund for them. I'm partial to cheap ETFs that mirror the S&P 500 because those 500 stocks represent the bedrock of America's publicly traded companies. As a companion, I like any sort of total return fund that has an even broader array of stocks. A mix of both I think is a terrific way to start. Your broker or the brokerage site you use might have some fund that's higher growth, a junior growth fund. And that can be a nice augmentation because you're buying for an infant who's got his or her whole life ahead of him, their whole life. These kinds of things can really compound over time. Meaning if you let it run, then money can build up on itself. Now, you might say, why am I watching a show about stocks of all this guy's doing is talk about index funds? Look. I could come out here every night and talk index funds, but it wouldn't make for a very interesting show, would it? I wouldn't be giving you my best advice either. I teach you how to pick individual stocks, both here, but really a huge amount in the CMC Investing Club, because I believe that is the most effective way to go, and I like to teach in the Investing Club. It's my favorite venue. I think you can build a portfolio yourself that can do better than most professional money managers or index funds. You can control your own money, but I'm perfectly sanguine about the notion that stock picking and index fund investing can coexist. I just wish the proselytizers of index funds weren't such fundamentalists about how bad everything else is. So I say let's give both a try. When you're saving for your kids, definitely start with an index fund. Now, What's a good stock for a kid just born? I think that you should pick two kinds of stocks for your children. One with a dividend, where you can reinvest those dividend payments, get the power of compounding that is such a good thing to teach people. We often hear the term of dividend aristocrats, companies that have long histories, certainly more than 25 years of increasing dividends. Love them. <laughs> it's hard to go wrong with the big, well-run consumer packaged good place. Here I'm talking about a company like Tried and True, Procter & Gamble, PepsiCo. The best way to find out my absolute favorites as soon as possible is to join that CMC investing club I've mentioned, and watch what we do with the child Trust. At the same time, you also want to give your kids something with a little more juice like the great growth stocks of an era. I mean, I'm talking about the the Apples, the the NVIDIAs, the Teslas, the the, the Metas. Now, if you do set up an account for your kids, may I please suggest going with a Uniform Gift to Minors Act account. I'm gonna call it UGMA for short, okay, U-G-M-A. The rules keep changing for these, but suffice it to say that you can gift children Money that can accumulate somewhat tax-free over time. Again, the rules have changed so much from when I set up the mutual fund for my kids through tax-favored gifts. I love them because they were like trust that you didn't need lawyers to create. Check with your broker for the latest rules for you in the state you're in. They, They do differ. I think it's one of the better tax breaks around, though. I know hunting for tax breaks may not sound very exciting, but that's how you take care of your family. Besides, who doesn't want free money? There's one caveat with these UGMA accounts, though. If your kid is planning to get financial aid in college, you want to be very careful because that UGMA money can count as theirs and might get them disqualified depending on the institution. One other thought I like, you know, I believe that gold is a terrific insurance policy for any portfolio. I'm going to talk more about this later tonight. But a highly unusual yet totally blessed by me idea is to buy gold or silver coins for your kids or just pieces of gold or silver. I bought slivers of slivers for my kids from a dealer and pretty much forgotten about them. They may or may not increase. These are polar opposites of growth or income stocks. They don't throw off money. They don't do anything. But in crazy times when inflation comes roaring back, and we now know it's certainly capable of happening, go to pretty high levels, not since the 80s, there's nothing that's hold up in value under the scenario better than mansions, masterpiece of art, and precious metals. One caveat, if you do this, remember to put the gold or silver in a safe place, please. That does not mean putting it under a master's, and it certainly doesn't mean putting it in a hole in the ground in the backyard. A safety deposit box, more my style. So the bottom line, when a child's born, think about setting up a uniform gift to minors account and put index funds or individual stocks in there. Specifically, I like cheap ETFs that mirror the SP 500. And on the stock side, your kids will want to... At least one dividend stock. Give them one dividend stock for income because a high yield stock can double the value of that investment by the time your baby turns 10. You also want one high quality growth stock that you believe in for the long haul because those can rack up big gains. Don't put this off. This must be done at the earliest moment to get the most involved for your brand new loved one. No one has ever regretted saving too early for their kids. They have money's back in friends. Coming
3: up, want to turn back the clock and invest in companies for all the kids out there? Kramer's got you covered next.
0: You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, The ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.
2: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Business Gold Card.
1: We're going over knowing thyself tonight, how to not just buy the right stocks, but the stocks that are right for you. We've discussed the importance of suitability and the essence of what's suitable for the newborns. But what's suitable for the kids? What do you do for them? I think you should do everything in your power to get your kids involved in investing in stocks, teaching that stocks represent pieces of companies that they might like. Now, let's be honest. These days, most parents probably think they couldn't explain what a stock is to a kid, especially a young kid. That's not how I grew up in my house, though. As much as I love sports and we even had tickets for the 64 World Series, we didn't make it, but we had them. Uh, Well, to me, stocks were supreme. My father had gotten a tip from his brother who knew a stockbroker he played tennis with. Guy told him to go buy a company shares in national Video which for all I know would have made it if it started right now as a Facebook live show. But in the 60s, it was a total bust that cost our family a fortune. Pop would always bring home the Philadelphia Bulletin when they went out of business, the afternoon edition. And he wouldn't give me the sports section. He gave me the business section. He wanted me to learn about stocks. I'd look up closing prices. The market closed early back then. I tried to anticipate where stocks were headed based on moving averages of how they were doing. Straight line, this kind of thing. It was a game of momentum. Game, most of the time, I only knew the stocks by their abbreviations in what we call small agate type. Oh, but it was fun game. I kept the ledger to see how I would have done on Tex, which was Texas Instruments, or maybe it was TGS, which was Texas Gulf Solver, or LTV or Rockwell. A host of companies that have disappeared, gotten acquired, or just still hang out and trade. I also bet on a lot of airline stocks because suckers are always buying those, and most kids are suckers. Eastern and National mostly, but enough too. They were household names because of advertising. Of course, most people under 50 have never heard of any of these. I liked the stock picking process so much, I got my whole fifth grade class at Penn Manor involved. We'd all pick stocks and keep track of the closing prices for a week to see who could make the most money. The problem, of course, is that I was doing the exact opposite of what I should have been doing. Although metaphorically, what I was doing then is still being done now, just picking stocks by how fast they were climbing and backing away from them if their climb seemed overextended or just slowed in velocity. Instead, I should have been picking the stocks of companies I knew and asking my dad permission to buy actually one or two shares, along with the money to pay for them, which probably would have been a deal breaker. So let's go over what would have been right and what was wrong in the picture I just painted. Think of this as Goufus and Gallant from the Highlights magazines that you always used to find at the dentist's office. Gallant, first of all, would never have taken a tip about National Video from his brother, who'd taken a tip from his tennis partner, who worked, by the way, for the aforementioned Beish. I learned later my dad had no idea what National Video even did. Imagine that, he bought some, he didn't even know what they did. Now you can find out more about it via Google right now than you could learn from Jack the Broker back then. National Video, you see, made vacuum tubes for TV sets. In the old days, when you had a problem with your television, it was usually because the tube inside had blown. Of course, the technology left National Video behind, so it went bankrupt. Closed its doors about five years after Pop bought the stock, but it had been going straight down since about five days after he bought it. He averaged down too many times to tell, but I know we had many a silent meal thanks to that day's decline in that godforsaken stock of National Video. I think we lost most of what we had as a family. There were a host of better stocks you could have picked back in the 60s. Most weren't that good according to the moving average, but they paid generous dividends. And In retrospect, what we needed more than anything else was income. Me? The idea of picking stocks simply because they were going up was antithetical to the idea of buying stocks in companies and was more suited to dark throwing. At least I picked the hot ones, many of which were defense contractors that were getting rich as LBJ escalated the Vietnam War. Well, for me, The game was a lot of fun. But in retrospect, I learned the most about stocks from two 3M board games. Yes, they used to have board games. Those board games were called Acquire and Stocks and Bonds. My father sold games for 3M back then. This was his job. Acquire was all about mergers and acquisitions. Stocks and Bonds was a fantastic game about accumulating wealth through risky or conservative stocks. By the way, you can get those. They're on eBay. You can see what I mean. These days, we have whole fantasy leagues of stocks, but few of them can teach you more than that one board game, Stocks and Bonds. It holds up. Now, let's come back in time and think about what I could have done differently. First, when you're a little kid, you play with toys. It would have been natural to buy shares in Mattel or Hasbro. Now, I'm not asking the kids to know what it means to own shares in a company in terms of price earnings, multiple or even earnings. I'm simply saying it's a way to teach kids that a company can be owned by the public and you can own a share in that company, too fake no toys. Of course, the irony should not be lost on my family. Can you imagine if my father had bought shares in a nice dividend stock for me? 3M rather than national video. We had a box of Cheerios on our breakfast table every day of our lives. We could have bought General Mills. What a fantastic stock. And then there were the real easy one. What kid doesn't want to go to Disney World? It's that factor and not how many people sign up for the streaming service that will always drive me back to the stock. The Disney library alone should be enough to make you want to own shares in the company. But the theme park, I mean, come on, let's not outthink this game. I don't know about Johnson Johnson's Band-Aids and shampoo. They were staples, and they've since been moved to Kenview. I knew then, as well as I know now, that Kleenex is something you use to wipe your nose. There's a good company, Kimberly Clark. These are things we aren't even taught. They're imprinted. Finally, there's fast food. McDonald's is obvious, or the incredibly well-run Chipotle if you want something a little more organic. Bottom line, please buy your kids a few shares in a name brand that they know and you know, something they can see and hear and touch, then put it away. The stock won't always work out, but think of what you liked when you were little or when your parents liked when they were little. See if it trades. You more than likely have a long-term winner. More importantly, got a great hook to get your children into a lifetime of investing. Let's go to Madison in Texas. Madison.
2: Hi, Jim. If I can get a guaranteed interest rate of over 5% by purchasing a six-month treasury bond, why should I invest in the equities market given market conditions?
1: Okay, because six months from now, those rates may be lower. You can continue to reinvest, but the stock market is far exceeded uh, longer term anything that you're going to get in a short term look, I'm not against five percent I own five percent paper myself but I will tell you this you want to take the long-term view and you can buy a dividend yielding stock that is very good like an Enbridge you know like a one oak that'll have growth not just a dividend no growth owning treasuries let's go to Annie in Rhode Island Annie hi
2: Jim great to talk you Thanks for doing these teaching segments. I appreciate it. Oh, thank
1: you, and thank you. It's what I got to do. I got to teach more, and that's what I intend to do for the rest of this of the run. What's going on?
2: Hey, um, well, I really enjoy the segments you do on technical analysis, and I have two questions. Sure. One, um, what are the best uh, resources if you want to study this? And how much should an amateur investor rely on charts versus fundamentals? Is it even appropriate? Great question.
1: Um, Look, I think charts are integral to your thinking. uh, I think that I, um, I really trade Larry Williams. You just Google Larry Williams. His, his stuff is the best. That's where I learn all of the great people that we have on have websites. But in the end, uh, technical analysis, I think I have a very good chapter in my last book. Uh, and in Get Rich Carefully, I spent a lot of time talking about technical analysis. It must be done. Okay, here it is. I happen to have it right with me. This is what my dad sold for a living. Can you imagine if he had bought this company, 3M, instead of national video? We might have been able to not have to dilute the grapefruit, the grape juice. I had to put the water in the grape juice. I didn't even know why. It's because we didn't have stocks and bonds. Buy your kids a few shares in a name brand, something they can see and hear and touch, like I learned with this stocks and bond game that is available on eBay. And believe me, I wish I had the rights. I put it out again myself digitally. There's much more mad money ahead. I'm giving you my best investing habit for the rest of your life, from teens to retirement and everything in between. And then I'm answering all your burning questions with my colleague, Jeff Marks. So stay with Kramer. Teenagers are incorrigible. The last thing they want to hear about is stocks. They have bigger fish to fry, to which I say, so what? I'm not going to tell them what to buy. I'm going to let them tell me. People watching this show have been huge beneficiaries of the innate consumer wisdom of my two daughters. We're always searching for ideas, both on air and especially for the CNBC Investment Club. And many of those ideas have come from young people, children, stepchildren. Their likes and dislikes can tell you a great deal. Hey, that's why I got Pine Domino so passionately for over a decade as the stock roared higher before peaking at the end of the pandemic, like most of the other delivery players. Sure, I met with Patrick Doyle the day he became CEO. Stock was at 10 bucks. Yes, the stuff did taste like cardboard before he reformulated the pizza in 2010. I loved that whole line of advertising and told you I thought it was a good spec. So sure, I recommended it. But that's not what made this stock a mad money crown jewel. Nah. It was the technology. See, my kids, like your kids, hate talking on the phone. They think it's for losers. But apps, they love them. And when my kids discovered the Domino's app, well, they were sold. No talking to people who might get their order wrong. No nervousness. No worries about where their pizza was in the process. That's two things that the great local joints couldn't do. And a no cheese option for the vegans, the ones that ask twice about the cheese, as in, are you sure you want no cheese? I think that's because of my kids. Finally, there was the joy of being able to pay online before the delivery person got there. Kids don't want to fuss with money. Of course, Domino's was just the tip of the iceberg. The delivery apps went on to take over the world. All this technology was totally lost to me, though. I never minded the phone, was always patient about when the pizza would arrive, never cared about the interchange for the delivery person. In short, I was not like the target audience. That's why I started calling Domino's a tech company that sells pizza, although now competitors can just outsource the darn stuff to DoorDash. Many of you know the story of how I got religion on Apple. Roughly 20 years ago, my youngest daughter asked for a second iPod, not because she lost it, as I immediately accused her of doing, but because she wanted one in another color for her. See, they were fashion accessories. She didn't want it to clash with her outfits. Personal computers? I mean, come on. My various employers have never embraced Apple, but my kids? For a long time, they'd rather be caught dead than use a Windows machine. They only wanted Macs. The iPhone was more controversial. They don't like change. They didn't like the plug change. They didn't want the earbuds. But what they really don't want is the Samsung. See, they're part of the Apple ecosystem, the much-derided, much-ignored Apple ecosystem with its service chargers that make it so they have to pay to store all their millions of pictures. What else? Fabulous. Google it, Dad. Yeah, that's how I found out about Google, now Alphabet. And when I got the word from the kids that they weren't allowed to Google something and that they were involved in in school, well, just count me in. When I was doing my senior thesis at Harvard to do some mindless name dropping, we had access to the fabulous librarians at Houghton. Their job, to look up anything you wanted. They had to go to the stacks for you, as they were called, and find out things that you would know where to look for. Well, that's all digital now. My kids get their news from their iPhones and they get their entertainment from Netflix. No, Faang wasn't purely their creation. I figured out Amazon. But Facebook, like I said, I went to Harvard. When you were a freshman, you got a book. It was called Facebook, and it had everybody's picture in it. Facebook is a derivation of that Facebook. My kids were on Facebook earlier. My youngest got sick of Facebook early on, probably because I got on it. But then she went on to Instagram, which Facebook cleverly acquired, and then kept as something separate. So you really didn't know it was part of something that older people had discovered. I didn't think the ads worked until we were inundated with Red Hot Chili Pepper merchandise bought on a click for something that, as my daughter said, wasn't an ad, just a link. Oh, Lordy, does everyone else dream that their ad is just a link? But it seems that only Mark Zuckerberg has the forethought to care about the user experience to such an extent that it works because the ads actually make sense. You do want to click on them. How about Chipotle? The kids love the fresh and organic chipotle salad. Still do. They're vegetarians. My youngest returned pretty early after the food-sickening incidents. The only difference being that she didn't take out because she didn't want to be seen inside. I just want to take out. Nothing's perfect about their picks. But I recommended this stock from the low hundreds all the way to 2000, largely because they liked it so much. Eventually, your kids will age out of the key demographic. However, if you pay attention to their likes and dislikes, you could get yourself decades worth of good stock picks. But once they reach a certain age, you need to pray for grandchildren if you want the freshest ideas. What if the picks themselves aren't any good? What if they aren't? That your kid likes a device that fits on your head and takes pictures or it fits on a wrist and measures steps? I don't know. Hey, that's the cost of learning. Remember, they have their whole lives ahead of them to make that money back if it's a screw up. You see, that's the beauty of teen investing. You can lose it and no one will notice. You pull the same kind of thing later in life and it's real consequences like here for me. So the bottom line is that for now, you can learn from your teenage children. Trust me, invest with them and you will not regret it. Mad Money is back after the break.
3: Coming up, are you trying to figure out which kinds of investments are right for your age? Well, look no further. Professor Kramers taking up the assignment next.
1: All night I've been talking to you about suitability. What's a suitable investment given your tolerance for risk and especially your age or when you're picking stocks for your kids to get them interested in the market? So how about the rest of our lives? Sadly, as you get older, you have less flexibility. Fewer investments are indeed suitable. Not initially, though. When you're in college, I don't expect you to put any money away at all. College costs too much. When I used to be doing my college tours, trying to get back in that game, I tried to get people to buy a share or two of a stock. But college saps the living daylights out of you in so many financial ways. I now regard it as a total hardship to even contemplate savings. But once you're out in the real world, it's imperative that you save, preferably through a 401k plan at work, or even better, a self-directed IRA. Now, see, I always prefer the latter because you can pick stocks, not just pick from options chosen by your employer, but typically have high fees that really knock your return down. That's for another show. This is where you have to begin the mix of index funds and individual stocks. Remember, I prefer both. There's too much risk in individual stocks to just put together a portfolio of names of your own choosing. So at a minimum, I'm demanding that you put your first 10 grand of savings from your first job into an index fund. The S&P 500 being my favorite, as I mentioned before. Now, I know that some will argue with this. I see them arguing on social media. I don't care. I know the truth. The possibility of one really bad stock hurting your nest egg, even as early as in your 20s, is simply too risky. With a nice slug of cash in an index fund, no single stock or even sector can do that. But with the rest of your money behind your first uh, that after that first 10,000 bucks, I do like stocks and I do want you to be diversified. And that's why we play at my adversary around here when we can, where I try to explain what diversification is in a breezy way. It's why we created the CBC Investing Club to show you how to invest using my Chapel trust as an example. Although the trust has a lot of restrictions to prevent me from using the show to juke the stats, as they say in one of my favorites, The Wire. But I can tell you that if you want in-depth work on stocks, I frequently mention on this show, The Investing Club is the way to go. So I set it up because I always talk about buying homework. I tell you that you need to buy a stock, but then you have to keep up with it. Buy and hold doesn't work. Remember back to earlier in the show when I discussed how hard it was to do the homework? Those trips to the Harvard Business School Library to study months-old research and microfiche? Now it's so easy that I've had to scrap one of my earlier road rules. You no longer need to spend an hour a week studying each of your stocks. Sure, you need to read the conference calls. You can Google articles galore. So many that, that you'll get sick of the process very quickly. You can have articles and research pushed to you along with charts that I only could have dreamed of having 30 years ago. Or you can read what we write at The Investing Club. Let us help you do the homework. Whatever makes you the most comfortable in your efforts to take charge of your money is what I favor. Remember, I want you to be either a good manager of your money or a good client. I do not have a preference. So let's talk about picking stocks as you get older. It's at this stage when you need to know thyself in terms of risk. Until you get to the late 20s at the earliest, I want you to take tons of risk, maybe more than you think you can handle, whether you like it or not, because you've got your whole life to make that money back if something goes wrong. But when you get to your late 20s, all I can do is ask you to think about what you'll do in a sell off. Do you have the wherewithal to take a decline and buy more or does the sell off sicken you and make you wish you had no exposure? Can you accept that stocks go down? It, not a silly question, given how they typically do go up over a period. I'll be able to put periodic spoons swo- down that are painful. These are crucial questions that only you can answer about yourself. I would like you to take more risk and own more individual stocks that have growth characteristics once you put away that first 10000 in an index fund. But once you're in your late 20s, I would hate to see you commit more than 20% of your money, your mad money, to speculative growth stocks. As you get older, I want you to capture more income by owning stocks that pay dividends, perhaps add a fund that boasts a high dividends than the S P and 500 offers. But don't be too quick to do so. In fact, I wouldn't advise you to start investing for income until your 30s. And even then, you should do it gradually and small. Only in your 40s do I want to introduce bonds to your portfolio. Now, in the old days, it would have been hard to suggest you don't start investing in fixed income by your 30s, let alone your 40s. But the problem with that is twofold. first, life expectancy, many people are outrunning their fortunes. And the bond market itself. There aren't always a lot of risk-free fixed income alternatives that don't entail a lot of risk. Generally, I'd rather own a high-yielding dividend stock that can raise its payout rather than a 30-year treasury bond that yields, say, 4%. Of course, as you get older, I recognize that most bonds do have that non caveat emptor provision. You can and do get your money back. Can't say that with stocks. As you enter your 60s, it's easy to see how yeah, you can put up to 50% of your money into bonds and take bonds up to 10% more each decade. That brings us back to the notion of suitability. If you can't handle the risk, if you think the stock market is simply not as legitimate an asset class as it once was, because it is prone to such deep valleys and what it in retrospect look like overblown threats, then I think you have to decide yourself if cashing out or taking stocks to minimum levels is right for you. And I can't blame you if that's the case because it has been an uncertain asset. The bottom line, it's your life, not mine. So get comfortable with what you can live with, but risk at least until your middle years should remain your best friend. Stick with Craig. I always say my favorite part of the show is answering questions directly from you. And tonight I'm bringing in Jeff Marks, my portfolio analyst and partner in crime. Help me answer some of your most burning questions. Now, look, for those of you who are part of the Investing Club, Jeff will need no introduction. For those of you who aren't members, I hope you will, yeah, of course I want you to join. I would say that Jeff's Insights and our back and forth helped me do a great job and him do a great job for all Mad Money viewers, but more importantly for members of the club, because this is what we really do. Now, if you like this, please sure to this thing. You know, I mean, like, I, like when you go to, like I went to a restaurant, you gotta do it. You know, my kids show me how to do it. All right, so first up, I'm older. First up, we have Tony in North Carolina who asks, in a losing position, What is the difference between being stubborn or taking the loss and then revisiting? Okay, well, this is a fundamental question. See, in the end, what a lot of people confuse is taking a loss. You take a loss if you find that the fundamentals are deteriorating. You don't take a loss because it's like you can't take it anymore. So uh, I think that this notion of a losing position, if it's a position where things have changed, you should have taken it. We have made the mistake at times of not identifying that there are changes at a company. But we don't like to view a company as a loser or a winner and a stock as loser or winner because some of our greatest picks have been losers. Sure, there's broken stocks, there's broken companies. What you have to identify is that if the issue at hand is a structural issue at the company, structural issue at the uh, industry level, then that uh, you're being stubborn if you hold on for too long. Right. But it could present itself to be a great buying opportunity if you stick with it and the company's able to fix itself up. And we've had those, many of those over time. All right, now we're taking a look at some of our of your mad mentions so let's go to Isaac, who says, Jimbo, which is what everybody calls me at home, by the way. Jimbo, my whole family loves your show. Thank you. I don't think I have bought or sold anything in the past 30 years without checking to see if you said anything about the stock. Now, this is what I love. See, Isaac uses us as a resource, one of many resources. I have never claimed to be the seer. I have claimed, and by the way, uh, someone, someone stopped this and says, you know, you're a great entertainer. Well, I, I like to entertain to bring people in. I'd like to think that I'm not just a great entertainer. But what I would point out is that I want you to check. You should check. Maybe we've said something. We're input. That's what we are. We are an input. Are we the input? No. But we are an important input, I believe, in making stock decisions. Yeah, absolutely. It's doing the homework, showing you how to do the homework so you at home don't have to. Right. You still have to, but it's, no. a, it's a guiding hand. I, look, I always, I always say that if you want, that there are people, uh, a lot of people say you just own index funds. I disagree with that. Uh, there are always people going to want to own stocks. If you want to own stocks, watch the show. You a member of the club. You'll be much better at it. All right, next up, we're taking a question from Rachel in Florida who says Hi, Jim. We have a thirty-year plus time horizon. We inherited some money; we don't need to live on. Does Jim advise against investing twenty, twenty-five percent of that money into S and P and the rest in stocks and bonds? Okay, this is really important. All right now, thirty-year plus time horizon, stocks, yes; yeah. bonds, no. You don't need bonds until you get very old. This is one of the points where I. I'm definitely at odds with most of the the so-called seers out there. I say that when you buy a lot of bonds, you're betting against your life. If you think you're going to pass away when you're 72, then it's 65, yes, buy bonds. I want people to think, young. I know that sounds almost uh, Pollyanna, but the reason why I say it is because if you have to go into a long-term care facility and you own bonds for the previous 20 years, you're not gonna have enough money. Stocks historically have outperformed Yes, yeah. 30 years, long-term time horizon. The key line too, you're fortunate enough where you don't need to live off that money. That means you don't have the risk of selling it in a potential market right. downturn. Uh, you can stay invested right. in the market, and over time, uh, you should do quite well. Yeah, I know. I, look, I, I think that when you, it's really a tricky question because people don't really like to talk about mortality. But what really does matter is is that if you have a long life and you've cashed in on bonds in your 50s and 60s, you, you're, you're going to be broke. You'll be broke. As long as you take that horizon, you can ride things out with stocks. And exactly. I think you'll have before bonds. Next, uh, we're going to Larry, also in Florida, who asks, hi, Jim. Can you touch more on the suitability in general on long-term treasuries for a retired investor, especially now as rates may soon start to decline and offer appreciation? Thanks. All right. Now. Long term treasuries are offering a very bad return. They're well under short term treasuries. That's called an inverted yield. Um, I would prefer actually to see you in uh, the Enbridge's, the, the utilities. And I say that because I think the treasuries, I think you end up losing money. You yeah. lose money. Look, another way to go: cash cows, dividend-paying stocks. Yes, so and also much better. Uh, they provide we, income as well. We have to stick with the More stocks for long income. term. Yeah. Anyway, thank you, Jeff. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise try to find it just for you, right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and we'll see you next time.
0: its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit CNBC.com forward slash Disclaimer.
2: Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix.
3: Ask your doctor about Cosentix.